0: If you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah chapter 31 for our Old Testament Scripture reading this morning. Here the weeping prophet speaks of a coming day from his own vantage point where the Lord would establish a new and greater covenant than had been formerly established with the nation of Israel. A covenant of grace still. The same substance of which we find in the Old Covenant, but one uh, in whose administration comes that is so much better. We find that the work of the Spirit now comes to inscribe the law of God, not simply on stone tablets as He had done at Sinai, but now He inscribes the law on the regenerated heart. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above shall, uh, can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Isn't it interesting that the Lord says uh, that heaven and earth cannot pass away until He fulfills all that He has promised to accomplish here by the word of the prophet. Now turning with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. So continue, continue making our way through uh, the greatest sermon ever preached—the Sermon on the Mount. We'll look this morning at verses 17 to 20. It's our Savior speaking. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. and unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is God's Word. Let us go before the Lord and ask that He bless not only the reading, but especially the preaching of His infallible Word. Our gracious God and Father, we come before you this morning with trembling hearts as we are... Uh, zealous to know what Your Word means. That we might believe all that You have called us to believe. That we might be diligent to do all those things that You have called us to do. But we uh, pray that though Your Word is clear and true, and because of our own sinfulness, we would have no hope of understanding these clear things that You speak, unless Your Spirit illuminates our eyes to understand these things. So we pray this morning that your Spirit would be at work in our hearts, that we would taste of your goodness, uh, and that you would work in us that desire, and the ability to do those things that you have called us to as citizens of heaven. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? Perhaps one of the most basic questions we should be asking ourselves as the people of God. And yet, were we to step into a random church anywhere here in the valley and ask that question, uh, no doubt we would find a variety of answers along a spectrum. What sort of answer do you think you might find? Perhaps you would step into one church and would hear something like this. Come as you are. Leave as you are. Sloppy agape. F- free love. It's all about acceptance. Love is love. Discipleship is all about accepting others, where there is no real call to a radical transformation of life or character. I'm not even thinking of liberal churches, even. How many of us have heard something along these lines? That Christ obeyed the law so that you don't have to. Perhaps some truth in that statement, but also a statement fraught with great misunderstanding and great error. But I'd be willing to guess that even here in the valley, there would be other churches that we would walk into where the answer would be given in the other extreme where they would give you a prescribed set of rules saying this is what discipleship consists in. Uh, These rules being derived in part from Scripture, albeit perhaps a misunderstanding of what's being said, or even perhaps being drawn from human tradition. How many of us have grown up in churches where Christian discipleship uh, consisted in no uh, drinking, smoking, chewing, or dancing? Or hanging out with those that do. You know, if you want to make it to heaven, it's all contingent upon the strength of will, exertion, your own good intentions, or even human performance. Here we have, I think, set before us two extremes. And perhaps we would hear uh, other answers in other churches that would fall somewhere in between. But really we have two radical extremes that we're so used to hearing in the world around us. Which path should we take? The path of licentiousness, where we are able to do whatever we want. Or the path of legalism, where our right standing with God is contingent upon how well we perform. And I think it raises yet a more fundamental question. What is the Christian's relationship to the law? When we read the law, how are we to respond to it? Do we see it as a checklist to determine how good we are in with God that day? We go, Oh, do not murder. Well, I haven't killed anybody today, so at least I've got one out of ten down. I think we're not able to answer this question, the Christian's relationship to the law, without asking an even more foundational question. What is Christ's relationship to the law? These two questions are interrelated and they are the very things that Jesus seeks to address in this particular passage this morning. It is only when we grasp these answers that we will understand both the good news of the gospel as well as our duties now that we've been called and ushered into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of heaven, and called to be citizens of the new creation so, I'd like us to consider two things this morning. First, I would like us to consider the mission of Christ. That is to say, why is it that Christ came? We'll consider that in verses 17 and 18. And then secondly, I'd like us to consider the nature of discipleship. You'll see that there in verses 19 and 20. In other words, what should we do? How should we respond? I would say two simple things, but these are perhaps two of the most profound questions that any of us will be confronted with in the course of our lives. Why did Christ come, and how should we respond? I mean, imagine what it would be like living in the first century. Even as you hear Jesus standing on the mountain as one who has come, one greater than Moses, who, as we have seen in the opening of this sermon, has not given and proclaimed the curses of the law, but one who has proclaimed a series of blessings now that the heavenly kingdom is in the process of inauguration. Where all the messianic hopes and dreams that have been nurtured and growing for centuries are on the verge of finally coming to bud and blossom and bloom. And yet, I want you to see and consider how this message of Jesus stands against the backdrop of all the other sermons uh, that the nation had been hearing for centuries. You go back to the 2nd century B.C. and you think of the triumph of the Maccabees, that Jewish revolt that culminated in the cleansing of the temple and the ousting of the Syrian empire. You You think of what happened just a century prior to Christ, where the Romans have now come to occupy Palestine, and revolutionary fervor continues to ferment and grow as well. For instance, when Herod the Great died in 4 BC, you remember Herod the wicked tyrant in chapter two who had slaughtered all the innocents, one who looks just like the great pharaohs of old. Shortly after Herod's death, no less than six different Jewish revolts arose in Galilee, with at least two men claiming to be the Messiah and proclaiming themselves to be Israel's true king where 2,000 insurgents were put to death by means of crucifixion. You find, fast-forwarding just a little bit, even during, uh, in the midst of the time of Jesus' own ministry, you find between the mid-20s and the mid-30s, at least seven further Jewish revolts in this region. And by the mid-40s, two more self-proclaimed prophets have uh, attempted a failed insurrection where they claim to be spokesmen for the living God claiming... That armed revolution and political fervor was necessary to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth. The early 50s, two more rebellions leading to the death of 20,000 Jews and the emergence of these kind of what we might call like a proto-terrorist organization, the Sicarii. All this boiling over into the great Jewish revolt that culminates in the destruction of the temple in the year seventy. My point is this that revolutionary fervor is on the rise within the nation of Palestine, where several have, can, have claimed to be the proper contender to the throne of Israel. Jesus himself will warn against all those false pretenders to the throne later in Matthew's gospel. What we find here is that revolutionary fervor is at fever pitch, and now Jesus comes as the descendant of David and claims to be uh, the one who has come to inaugurate that long-awaited heavenly kingdom. What do you think the people are going to expect? The era of the kingdom has arrived. It is time to take up arms. The dawning of great blessedness has come, the proclamation of comfort, the inheritance of heaven and earth, the sight of God, and our adoption as sons has arrived. Let us prepare for battle. Everyone else is doing it. The anti-empirical rhetoric has been emblazoned in the religious and cultural DNA of that generation with the people looking for an excuse to overthrow their civil overlords. And so Jesus, knowing full well the ways in which the people would filter his message and take it to mean something he does not, he speaks very clearly here where he says, do not think that I have come to repeal the law or the prophets. And if somebody was to come up to you and says, hey, now don't think I'm saying this, what's the implication? You're probably thinking the very thing that person is telling you not to think. People are thinking that Jesus has come to do something that has run contrary to what Scripture actually teaches. Perhaps they're thinking this is in full accord with what Scripture is actually teaching, but as we're going to see through the rest of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is going to say, you have heard it was said, but here, let me give you a course correction on what the true meaning of the law actually is. Jesus is having to do the deep work of real discipleship with people who have misunderstood and misappropriated the law of God for their lives. That's what Jesus means when he says the law and the prophets. This is almost what we might call a shorthand for what we would call today the Old Testament. You think what Jesus says in Luke chapter 24. Was it not written that all that was written in the law and the prophets were things that testify of me. So Jesus is saying very simply I have not come to abolish the old testament either in terms of the law or in terms of the prophets And yet we'll see that Jesus' hearers have been misreading and misinterpreting the Scriptures for years. And now Jesus comes and turns everything up on its head. He's not giving a new law, as it were. He's coming to give the proper interpretation to the very thing that had been handed down to Israel at Sinai. They have failed to grasp the Scriptures on its own terms. They have failed to grasp the role of the Messiah. They have failed to understand Christ's own appointed mission. And their sorrow over their present plight, and we should not uh, 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 kind of gloss over that. They were under the heavy th- thumb of Roman oppression. You walk down the street, and, uh, you, and and you would see Roman soldiers up and walking up and down the streets. There is heavy taxation. Roman Empire isn't uh, the nicest lot of soldiers that you might find. And so in some sense, you would, we want to feel the, the weight of sorrow that the people here would feel. But because of that, they have allowed their present political circumstances to bring the Messiah down and have a too earthly-minded conception of what the Messiah was actually coming to do. They had simply thought that the Messiah would come to liberate them from another political oppressor. as if all that the Christ was to accomplish was to establish another regime that looks like every other kingdom on the face of the earth. But That's the very thing about this sermon. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Jesus' kingdom is something that's completely and radically different. Even as the prophet Daniel had foretold that this kingdom of God would look like a giant mountain, eventually it comes in a small form, and it breaks and shatters the kingdoms of men. And yet it comes in a form that nobody would expect. And yet the people have reduced religion to a matter of government and politics. In a word, they've become too earthly-minded. They did not expect a heavenly kingdom, only another earthly kingdom. Perhaps the biggest and baddest of all earthly kingdoms ever to exist. But earthly nonetheless. Part of Jesus' whole point in this sermon is to lift our eyes to heaven. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. It's a call to heavenly mindedness that our Savior is giving here. He's come to shatter our false misconceptions of His actual mission. And that's the same thing we see today. All around us, is it not? Certainly we can relate to such similar fears. Frustrations over a tyrannical government finding hope in a religious order that will hope to set things aright on the earthly terrestrial sphere not necessarily a bad desire to want a good civil government that's highly applauded but the work of the kingdom of heaven should not be reduced to simply political ends the problem is that so often we have made our messiah too small we expect him to act as a king, as every other king in the history of the face of the earth has acted. So Jesus clarifies his mission, a mission he understands full well. Uh, Jesus is not like Neo from the Matrix, who has, uh, comes to this kind of dawning sense of some type of call that he's not quite sure about. No, J- Jesus from the get-go, even as a small child, is very clear of what his mission is. He tells his parents, don't you know I should be about my father's business? And here he says, look, this is the reason I have come. Do not think I have come to overthrow the Scriptures, either the law or the prophets. I have not come to do that. Rather, I have come to fulfill them. Yet another curious statement. What is meant by that? What does Jesus mean by fulfillment here? You know, I remember as a kid, uh, around Christmas time, we'd have the Christmas tree. And and one of the things that we would do as a family is we would uh, pop a bunch of popcorn. And you get these little popcorn pieces and you put them on a string. I don't know if you've ever done that. And you have the string of popcorn and then you wrap it around the tree. Now, how many of us tend to think the gospel narrative is something like popcorn along a string? It's almost like a, a three-year-old telling a story. When oh, Jesus did this, oh, and then he did this, oh, and then he did this. Did, then he did this, then he did this, then he did this, then he did this, at the end. Now, how many of us read the gospels as just kind of a series of disconnected events? Rather than recognizing that Matthew and Mark, Luke, and John are theologians in their own right that have carefully constructed a narrative. These are master storytellers telling true, factual history, but giving it in a way that is intended to teach us something about who Jesus is and what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And the same goes true here when Jesus speaks of fulfillment. Matthew does not simply tell us, he shows us. We've already seen this several times, and you'll see it a total of ten times in Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus says something, and then Matthew will make this kind of almost offhanded remark that this thing was done in order to fulfill what was done according to the words of the prophet X, be it Hosea, Jeremiah, Zechariah, Isaiah, the list goes on and on and on. In other words, the very things through the course of Jesus' entire life were not accidental uh, events of random happenstance. They have been preordered, premeditated according to the counsel of God from before the foundation of the world be it the virgin birth, be it Herod's slaughter of the innocents, be it uh, uh, Joseph's flight to Egypt be it Jesus' own Nazarene identity or His gospel preaching or the declaration that He would bear the infirmities and sins of the people of God, that He is the Spirit-empowered servant of the Lord as promised in Isaiah, would come and bring salvation not just to the nation of Israel, but He would come bringing salvation to the nations through His proclamation and His pastoral care as one who will not allow a bruised reed to be broken, as one who will bring light in the midst of darkness, one whose prophetic ministry would consist in proverbs and riddles, as a king enters Jerusalem not in conceit or contempt, but he enters in humility riding upon a donkey, as one who would be betrayed by the very nation that he had come to save. All those things, Matthew says, happened in order to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. Jesus says, this is my mission. It's not something that runs antithetical to the Old Testament. Uh, you want to understand Jesus' mission, you need to go to the Old Testament and you will see the blueprint. You will see uh, the, uh, uh, the, um, the playbook, as it were. The very thing Jesus has come to accomplish, the great victory of redemption for His people. In other words, Jesus is saying that His mission is not an ad hoc, accidental, improvised affair, but one that has been planned and premeditated from before the foundation of the earth. And So there are things that Jesus says He must do, and there are things that Jesus says He will never do. And Jesus has not come to be like any other of these so-called messiahs who have come to instill revolutionary fervor. No, here is one who has come to uh, inaugurate a better kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, a kingdom without end. Furthermore, his mission accords as I've said with the totality of Scriptures, and so he has not come to cast the means of his victory to the wayside. We've already seen that in his encounter with Satan in the wilderness. Satan says, you want the kingdom? Fine. Here's the shortcut. Game over. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. He says, no, 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 no. This is not what the Word of God says. The kingdom is something that Christ will inherit, not by sword, but by cross. And any thought, any attempt to establish heaven on earth by armed conflict fails to grasp the spiritual nature of this kingdom. But the question is, how would Christ accomplish such a work? Notice what Jesus says here. He does not simply say that He had come to fulfill the prophets. He says He has also come to fulfill the law. Again, our thoughts in reading Matthew. Again, Matthew's the master storyteller. He's giving us all the information we need to understand what Jesus is saying. What is it that Jesus says when he comes to John the Baptist at the River Jordan and says, I must be baptized by you? And, and John the Baptist says, No, 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 <laughs> no. I don't need to baptize you. You, you need to baptize me. What does Jesus say? Stop it. This has to be done. Why? Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, in order to fulfill all righteousness. I know that was what a sermon two and a half, three months ago. But if you recall, Matthew's making it patently clear that Jesus is coming as the obedient son to undo the curse that first disobedient son had accomplished. As the first Adam in common and disobeyed and plunged the world into sin and misery, Christ comes as the obedient last Adam, the true and eternally begotten Son of God, to fulfill all righteousness, that He might bear the cross, that He might bear the curse of the law at the cross, in our place, that the law might be fulfilled in us. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 by those who've been gifted with the Spirit. that here comes a righteousness that is fulfilled, a righteousness that comes apart from keeping the law, a righteousness that is received through faith alone, and yet a righteousness that actually enables and empowers us to walk in the law that God has required. See, here Jesus is giving an answer to the question, what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ, that avoids both ditches that we've considered at the beginning of this sermon both the error of licentiousness and also the error of legalism. In accordance with the prophets, Jesus has come to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law as the great representative of His people. That He might gift His Spirit upon His people. That the Spirit would now take the law which which under the old covenant had been inscribed on tablets of stone and now... Of course, the problem with the Old Covenant is it's external. Jesus comes and makes it efficacious. He now, as 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says, by giving the Spirit, that the Spirit comes to inscribe that law not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts, to effect a real transformation of life and of character. That God has come to do what the very law of God was unable to do. God sent His Son to condemn sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In other words, Jesus has not come to render the law irrelevant. Rather, he's come, we might say, to further establish and strengthen that. We're unable to keep it on our own. That's the classic church history, the Pelagianism versus the Augustinian controversy 101. Pelagius said man is able to keep the law because God has commanded, and Augustine looks because, nope. <laughs> Have you read the Bible? Have you examined your own heart? None of us are righteous. None of us can keep God's law on our own. We need a supernatural work on the heart. And this is the very thing that the New Testament proclaims, that Jesus has come to effect that supernatural redemption that is needed, not only to deliver us from the curse of the law, but to enable us to walk in the ways of God as citizens of this heavenly kingdom. And so Christ's mission shapes our mission as citizens of heaven. That's the very thing that we get at when we look at verses 19 and 20. Notice that therefore. This is a popular preacher Rise slogan. When you, when you see the therefore, you ask, what's the therefore, therefore? The therefore, therefore is therefore because Jesus is saying, in light of what he's. Already said in verses 17 and 18, here comes the conclusion. Here comes the implication, the inference of what Jesus has been saying so far. Because Jesus has come to fulfill the law, this is what it means. Does it mean that it gets us off the hook from obeying God's moral law? Jesus' response is this, absolutely not. Therefore, if anyone seeks to relax even the least of these commandments, he's going to be called least in the kingdom of God. If you look at Jesus' mission, you go, ah, whew, now I don't have to worry about those Ten Commandments anymore. You've misunderstood the purpose of why Jesus has come. You think of what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 2 when he reminds his hearers that those who had heard the old covenant, those under the old covenant who had heard the law and they disobeyed, well, they were punished. Well, the point of Hebrews is now something better has come along, and if it's something that's better, if it's something that's far greater, do you think that we're going to escape if we neglect such a great salvation? I think we have this tendency to think that the New Testament lets us off the hook, that liberates us from our obligations. Again, think of that catchphrase my old campus minister in college would call it "sloppy agape." If you go to church, if you're nice to your neighbor and you mean well, well, that's just good enough. That's not Christian discipleship. Might be a decent civil neighbor, but it is not what God has called us to as citizens of heaven. Jesus' point is here, and as we read elsewhere in the New Testament, if anything, there's a greater weight, a greater import placed on obedience. The difference is that obedience is not the grounds of our justification and our right standing with God. Just because it's not the grounds of our justification does not make it any less important. It does not make it optional. Again, I'm not saying that our obedience is meritorious. We're not justified by our obedience. But this does not make our obedience any less necessary. As we confessed our faith together earlier from the Westminster Confession of Faith, the gospel does not dissolve our obligation to obedience, rather it strengthens it. Because Jesus has died in our place, therefore this is how we are to live. Our King has delivered us from the tyranny of sin, therefore we should serve the King who has saved us and not that tyrant sin by reverting as a dog does to his vomit, by going back to one's own ways, by one seeking to make a home in the dungeon from which Christ has liberated him once and for all. Therefore, whoever relaxes even the least of these commandments will be called least in the kingdom. Jesus has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But He has done that, not that we would disregard the law, but that we might practice it. Not just that we would practice these commands, but also that we would teach others to do the same. Our Savior reiterates this in the Great Commission, that we are to be diligent to teach the nations to observe everything that Jesus has commanded. There are actual duties under the Gospel that we are called now that we have been redeemed. We see that pattern in the Old Testament as well. I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of the house of slavery. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. And this is a law that's given within the context of the great reality and indicative of redemption. Now, I remember having dinner with a friend a few years ago. I remember him telling me that uh, evangelicalism's preoccupation with sexual ethics was morbid and unchristian. And I, I asked him, why, Brian? And he said, well, there are children starving in Africa. So God has more important things to worry about than who I am sleeping with. See, in his mind, there were big commands and there were small ones. And so long as he kept the big commands, God doesn't really care about the little things. Of course, it raises the question, how do you determine what are the big commands and the small commands? But notice what Jesus says here. That undermines that very thought. Jesus whoever relaxes not just the great commands but whoever relaxes even the least of these commandments there's an obligation that we have to obey all that Christ has said whether we can consider the commandment big or small we might have a certain hierarchy of big sins and small sins in our mind you might be right you might be wrong But according to our Savior, the Gospel does not let us off the hook from breaking even the alleged lesser sins. You want to be called great in the kingdom, you must learn to practice and to teach the duties that God requires. Not as the grounds of our salvation, but as the fruit of our salvation. As that straight and narrow path to which we have been called as citizens in an earthly wilderness, making our way to a greater kingdom. A kingdom that has more firm foundations. Than any government or society here on earth, what we need is an abounding righteousness, and that's what our Savior says here—that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. You know, back in the day, these are the religious superstars of the day. Uh, this is kind of Jesus' equivalent of a high school football co- or a basketball coach saying that you know you want to be on this team, you better dunk better than Michael Jordan. Setting the bar pretty high, it seems. You look and you think, well, how is this possible? Look at all that the Pharisees do. Look at all their public prayers. Look at how, uh, how much they give. Look at how pious and righteous and holy they are. As we're going to see throughout this Gospel, Jesus is going to begin to unthread everything uh, His disciples have come to understand and think what real righteousness looks like. See, Jesus has come not only to abolish the law, but to dismantle misperceptions about the law. We'll see that in the coming weeks when Jesus will say, you have heard it was said, but here, now I say to you. He's providing a course corrective. But what we see here is what Jesus is getting at here is that for the scribes and the Pharisees, their righteousness was a superficial righteousness. It was what we might say is a righteousness that has only gone skin deep. It looks good on the outside, Uh, but it's like a really nice-looking mausoleum. It's so pretty. Beautiful architecture. What's inside of it? A rotting corpse? It's Jesus' description of the righteousness of the, the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus says, you need something better than that. You need something that gets to the heart of the matter. You need a righteousness that runs through and through. And that's why Jesus is going to begin to take the the Ten Commandments and say, okay, well, you have heard it was said, you should not commit adultery. And go, great, I've never cheated on my wife. And Jesus says, well, what have you looked at lately? And you go, oh, no. A greater righteousness is required. A righteousness that cuts down not just to outward actions, but to the thoughts, the intents, the affections. Everything that arises and bubbles up from the heart. What we need is another kind of righteousness, an abounding righteousness. The righteousness that has been secured by the obedient Son who has fulfilled the law, by His obedience unto death, who bore the penalty of sin at the cross and was raised so that His vindication, so that His justification might be made ours. What we need is a righteousness that has been imputed, that leads to a holiness that has been imparted distinct yet inseparable benefits that we find in union with our Savior is we have not only been justified, but those who have been justified are also sanctified. That God declares us to be righteous, but then He also constitutes, He makes us righteous over the course of our whole lives by the work of His Spirit who weans us off of a life of an unhealthy spiritual diet to sin. And He causes us to taste and see that He is good. Here we have given to us in the gospel, in the gospel, righteousness that comes apart from the law, and with it a spirit wrought holiness, whereby we are enabled to fulfill the very things that God requires for the very first time in our lives. We see that the law runs much deeper than we've ever dreamed. Where it once prohibited murder, it, we find here it also condemns our own bitterness and jealousy or it has prohibited adultery, it continues to condemn us not only in our actions, but in our polluted lusts and desires. When it commands love, it requires that we love not only our friends, but our enemies. When it requires charity, it requires that we do it from a pure heart, not only to be seen by men. It is a righteousness that is far greater than the religious superstars of Jesus' own day. What we need is a righteousness that cuts to the heart A righteousness that cleanses us from the stain of sin. A righteousness that not only abounds, but a righteousness that abides. And that is the great promise given to us in the New Covenant. That what God requires, He freely gives. That here in the New Covenant, Christ has fulfilled what the law has required. And in doing so, He has hushed the loud thunder of Sinai. He has given us His Spirit. The Spirit of holiness who inscribes God's law in our heart that we might walk in His ways and obey Him from the heart. And so, although the condemning power of the law has been shattered, the duties and the obligations of the law remain. Now in Christ, the law neither justifies nor condemns us. Now it continues to remind us of what our sins deserve and also what our Savior has accomplished. The law reveals what God loves, and the Spirit enables us to love those things that God loves. Now, in the law, we find an instruction given to believers to walk the path of righteousness, and by the Spirit, we are enabled to walk that path. Here, the law demonstrates what true obedience consists in, as the Spirit works in our hearts to obey our Savior from the heart. Here we find that though the law cannot save, the law teaches us and directs us to one who does as it teaches us what it looks like to be holy as well. Because Christ has fulfilled the law for us and has given us His spirit. Such was the promise of the law and the prophets. Sermon Bobbing once said, the great uh, dual promises of the Old Testament are this, the sending of the Son and the outpouring of the Spirit. That's the Old Testament in a nutshell. And here we find the fulfillment in the work of Christ. If we could summarize this section, we could simply put it like this, that Christ... to fulfill the law and the prophets. Therefore, let us practice and teach all that the Lord has commanded. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that uh, that you would teach us your ways, that we might heed the voice of our King, our King who has freely justified us by his grace and has called us to obedience. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.